He wanted to play the drums. I don't blame him. His age, I'd want to play the drums too. Turn to Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all at Rome, and Hope Chapel, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul closes the introduction or the salutation of his letter to the Roman church, and he says then, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And he says, and God, who I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. Of how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that Many times I have planned to visit you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. For it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made, so that men are without excuse. And although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks, and their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen.
And because of this, God gave them over to, to shameful lusts. Even their women abandoned natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also exchanged the natural use of women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committing indecent acts with other men and receiving in their person the due penalty for their perversion. And furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who do them. Paul has, in the latter part, from verse 18 to 32 of the first chapter of Romans, set forth categorically how the man, the woman, who has turned from him, turned to idolatry and immorality and every shape and form of sin, stands under condemnation. The wrath of God is being poured out from heaven against them. Now, as Paul indicts them, based on God's standard, and really it's God indicting sinful man, as he does so, you have, in the second chapter now, Paul addressing a different person. You have people who are going to stand off on the side as Paul is indicting these people, you're going to have the self-righteous person standing off and saying, yes, Paul, I agree. Those wicked sinners deserve what they get. Thank God I am not like them. And Paul is going to turn to the self-righteous person. Now, what is that? What is a self-righteous person? It's a person who is trusting in their own goodness their own works, keeping the rules. Maybe they're religious. Maybe they are a person who is a professing Christian, going to church regularly. Maybe they're baptized. But they're trusting in something other than Jesus Christ. You see, a self-righteous person is always going to be a person who is critical and judgmental of other people. Because Paul says in the first verse of the second chapter, he says, you therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment 
do the same things. Wait a minute, I don't feel like that. I don't judge anybody else. Oh. We're going to look at that verse and we're going to look at every aspect of it this morning. But I want us to keep one thing in mind. Who is God talking to? He's talking to the person who's trusting in something other than Jesus to justify himself. He's defending himself on some other basis than Christ. The Bible says there's another basis. It's a self-righteous person who may not verbally, externally criticize and condemn other people, but he certainly will in his thought life. He will look down on other people. He will condemn them in his mind. He will say to himself, thank God I am not like them. And it's only the person who understands and knows and moment by moment is trusting in Christ who can say, when they see another person caught in sin, who can say, there go I but for the grace of God. You see why? Because that person's not trusting in their own self. They're learning to trust in Christ moment by moment. They're learning to say, I'm a sinner too. I understand exactly what that person is going through and doing. I have no basis to condemn or criticize. I'm a sinner also. The only difference between me and that person is I'm saved by God's grace. So Paul addresses this whole situation in this second chapter. Am I cutting out? Steve? Somebody wake Steve up back there, please. I'm cutting out periodically, Steve. Yeah. Okay. I'm off again. Now I'm on again. Okay, now. Ooh. Okay, let's try it again. Real ringy. Okay, now, that's still a ringy. All right, we'll try it. No excuse. Do you remember at the end of the 20th verse of the first chapter, Paul says to those people who looked around at nature, Paul says, you have no excuse. God has revealed himself to you through nature, through that which has been created. You can't stand before the bar of God and say, I didn't know, I didn't see. God is going to say, you had no excuse. I revealed myself to you. And you can argue that point all day. But that doesn't make it not true. God has still revealed himself. Whether people want to engage that or not, it's their choice. And when every man stands before the judgment throne of God, he has to give account. And if he didn't respond to the light given through creation, then God says, you have no excuse. Did you ever look at nature? Then you have no excuse. And to the man in the second chapter, the moralist, the good person, the religionist, the one who's trusting in his own efforts, self-justifying, self-righteous, Paul turns to him and he says, in effect, have you ever criticized or judged anyone for anything? You too have no excuse. 
And why don't you have any excuse? Because you know the standard. Because you know exactly what this person isn't doing they ought to be doing. Are you doing it? Probably not. Don't every single one of us know more than we're willing to do? Aren't we all guilty? Every one of us, right? None of us gets off free. Every one of us falls short, right? Would you say that none of us has an excuse? Yeah. And so when you stand to accuse somebody else, you are in effect accusing yourself. When you point one finger, how many fingers point back at you? Exciting, huh? You see, man has no basis for justifying himself. And when we find ourselves condemning other people and criticizing other people, we've slipped off justification by faith. We've walked away from grace. We've gotten back on our own self-righteousness. We're standing pointing a finger at somebody. We get back into grace, get back into an understanding that I'm saved by grace. There's nothing I've done, no, no efforts, no works on my own. I don't deserve it. We get back into, into the truth. Then we look at the sinner and we say, Oh, I understand. I'm a sinner too. You see, the moralist, the, the good person, the really good moral people, the ones who have not abandoned all sense of morality, what do we do with those people? Where do, we, where do we deal with them? Where do we talk to them? They talk to them in the second chapter of the book of Romans. Paul talks to them there. He dresses them right there. And when you share the gospel with people who you love, family, friends, relatives, and so forth, and they say, well, I'm a good person. God would never do that to me. You see, there's, isn't there this, this still small voice in every person that works very hard to convince them that somehow in the end it's all going to work out okay? Sure it is, isn't it? And we keep hoping on the basis of this little quiny, naggy voice that says, no, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. God won't do that to you. We need to go to the Word and find out what God's going to do. Now respond to that little tiny voice that's trying to convince us that we're okay. I'm different. I'm different. I'm not a sinner like you. I'm a good person. You have no excuse, Paul says. You have no excuse. I want to show you a, a classic illustration of this. Turn with me to Mark, the 10th chapter, the 17th verse. The Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter. The 17th verse. Most of us are very familiar with this, this story, this account. It's more than just a story. But again, it's a picture of, of someone who is trusting in his own moral goodness to give him eternal life, to allow him to enter into the kingdom of God if there, in fact, is such a thing. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Are you intimating that I'm on the level with God? I might be the Messiah? You know the commandments. 
Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mark is the only gospel writer that records this phrase that Jesus loved him. Loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Now, can't you picture that? Right after Jesus says, it's only, you lack only one thing. The guy thinks he's got it all in line. Oh, there's one more. Th- that's it, just one more. Oh, tell me what it is so I can do it. Isn't that exciting? You just, one more thing. Well, let's see what that one more thing is. He says, go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. After you've done that, then come follow me. And the young man thought for a moment, considered Jesus' offer, reflected, and said to himself, makes sense. Good idea. I think I'll sell everything I have, give to the poor, then come follow Jesus. I think I'll put my whole life into Jesus' care. I think I'll trust him instead of everything else I've been trusting in. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Is that what he does? No, that's not what he does. We're told that at Jesus' words, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's not just the rich. The principle behind that passage is how hard it is for anyone who will not put their trust in me. How hard it is for anyone who is trusting in any other thing, be it riches, be it their looks, be it their talent, be it their ability, be it their works, be it their religious heritage, whatever it is. If they're trusting in anything other than me, how hard it is for them to enter the kingdom of God. Powerful, huh? You see, Jesus is describing in that passage the very person that Paul is talking to, the person who thinks they've justified themselves, that they are self-righteous, that they don't need a righteousness from God given to them. They can do it on their own, that they're A-OK in God's sight, that they're a good person, just because they don't involve themselves in homosexuality, murder, rape, pillage, and plunder. No, no, they are condemned. You know, Paul is ultimately pointing us to, you know what he's he's doing here. From verse 18 of the first chapter, clear through verse 20 of the third chapter, Paul is setting forth all the bad news. Do you know that, don't you? He's got to tell us the bad news before he can tell us the good news. And he sums up the bad news in verse 19 and 20 of the third chapter when he says that the whole world is accountable to God. There is not one single person that escapes. That all men are sinners. In one way or another, they are a sinner. Whether they are flagrantly immoral, 
or whether they are flagrantly moral externally, but internally they are judgmental and critical and wicked. Whether they be the religious person who is trusting in his religion or the irreligious person who's trusting in his philosophy. Whoever it is. Paul says in the end of that third chapter, 19th, 20th verses, all the whole world is accountable to God. That's where he's pointing to. And he's just dealt with the immoral man. Now he's dealing with the moral man, telling him he has no excuse either. Salvation, eternal life, going to heaven, being with God, however you want to describe it, people view access to it, if there is really such a thing, they view access to it one of three ways. First, through their own moral behavior, through the law, through works, through being a good person. And again, we've talked about this, is the person who says, well, I'm, I'm good. God, if there is God, wouldn't judge me. He wouldn't send me to hell. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I vote Republican, all this. <laughs> I support the president. But you see, that's not the avenue. Because again, we all know that none of us is willing or able to do what we know ought to be done. Isn't that true? Don't we all fall short? Horribly short, don't we? Therefore, we're all guilty. Morality is not the basis. Law works. Keeping the rules is not the basis because none of us keep the rules. So therefore, if you don't keep the rules perfectly, you don't get in. The second avenue that people turn to is sacramentalism. We see this clearly pictured in the Old Testament because Israel trusted in sacramentalism. They trusted in the sacrament of circumcision. If they were circumcised, Jewish. Part of the Jewish nation, they were in. They were automatically in the kingdom of God. That was their understanding. Hence, no need for personal accountability. They were under the umbrella of Judaism, and that automatically guaranteed them eternal life. Not so. You wonder why Israel was so constantly in rebellion to God throughout the whole Old Testament? Is because there was no concern for personal accountability. They were just trusting in the sacrament of circumcision to get them in. They believed God would save the whole nation, get them all in. They believe the same thing today. God's chosen people. They don't understand what the chosen refers to, though. That's no different from the church today, be it Catholic or Protestant or Lutheran or any of the others. All the denominations are practicing sacramentalism. Many of them believe in baptism, that baptism saves. That is not a biblical principle. Baptism doesn't save. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. It's when a person puts their faith in Jesus that they're saved. The baptism is only a statement of the spiritual reality of salvation. You say, well, what about the strengthening? What about the, the transformation of life that occurs when a person gets baptized? That strengthening, that transformation of life comes along every single time you share your testimony, does it not? Isn't baptism a testimony? A testimony of a person's identification with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection from the dead. And so people who are trusting in sacramentalism to save them, that's not where it's at. They're trusting in, 
in just empty symbols from their perspective. The third avenue is the only real avenue, and that's Jesus. And it's by faith in Jesus. What does that mean, faith in Jesus? I hear this all the time, faith in Jesus. What do you mean by that? It means that you put your trust in him. That you look to him now as the source to meet every need in your life. That he is sufficient for everything that you need in your life. That you can trust him in his word. That you give your life to him, you surrender to him, and you follow after him every single day of your life. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. He said he'll save you. I don't feel saved. By faith. Faith in Jesus. He said he'll do it. You follow after him, you're going to get saved. You're going to go to heaven. Well, shouldn't I keep all the rules anyway? Yes. Certainly you're not supposed to rape, murder, pillage, and plunder. The standard is still there, but the basis for keeping it is different. No longer are you keeping the rules to justify yourself, to establish your own righteousness. You're now keeping the rules because you love him. Because you love him. And because it's right. No other basis. No other basis. Isn't that exciting? You do it now because you love him and because it's right. Salvation only comes one way. That's through faith in Jesus Christ. And people... If you are trusting in anything else, oh, beloved. And I know there are some people here this morning, I know we have people in our congregation who come regularly, who tithe regularly, who are trusting in something other than Christ, who have not yet fully grasped the understanding of what it means to walk in, by faith in Christ, to give their life to Him. They know the lingo. They're in the fellowship. They go to many church. They're having part of the fun the fluff, they profess, but they don't yet possess because they're still trusting in something other than him. They've not abandoned themselves. And they don't wonder why there's no joy and peace. They wonder why their life's not working like other people's. They wonder why there's this vague sense of uneasiness down deep inside of them. It's because they've not trusted. They've not trusted. They've not trusted themselves into his hands. What does Paul mean by passing judgment? How do people pass judgment? I've got a couple of classic illustrations for you. Turn with me to the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. This is an absolutely thrilling passage. Every time I read it, I am convicted. God speaks to my heart because I have a tendency to... Con to condemn and to judge sinners. I've got to always remember, too, that I am a sinner saved by grace. And in this passage, Luke, in verse 9, gives us a little bit of a kind of a commentary on the parable. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Now, there are always going to be people in the church like that, right? They're always going to be the self-righteous, the judgmental, the critical. Always. They're not just out there in the world. They're in the church, too. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Modest, isn't he? God, I thank you that I am not like all the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Aren't you proud of me, God? I do all the rules. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, meaning the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God, went home declared not guilty before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Turn with me to the eighth chapter of John's Gospel. There's another interesting illustration of this principle of what it means to condemn other people. The eighth chapter of John's Gospel, page 1093. Verse 2, at dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. You know, that is one of the most interesting passages in all of Scripture. What did he write? And I think that every Christian who's ever read this passage is going to one day get to heaven and say, Lord, what did you write in the ground? <laughs> He said, your name. <laughs> Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Now get this, the older ones first. Why the older ones? You suppose they're the ones that really knew better? Sure they did. And the younger ones would follow after. The older ones knew. They knew that in condemning her, they... then you cast the first stone. You have no basis for judging and criticizing because you are guilty also. If you're going to stone her, you must be stoned. You're just as guilty. Jesus straightened up and asked her, oh, look at this. I want to finish that other verse. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I want you to get this picture in your mind. Put yourself in the place of the woman. You've been accused. You've accused yourself. Feel condemned? 
Put your place, yourself in the place of the woman. Who's standing there? Nobody else but Jesus and you. Right? Is Jesus wagging his finger at you? No, your pastor does that. Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> Jesus looked up at her and asked, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and sin no more. Whoa. What does Jesus want to do? He wants to forgive. He doesn't want to condemn. He doesn't want to send people to hell. He wants to forgive them. But they've got to come to him. They've got to see him as God's uh, solution for their problems. And so we see two examples of what it means to pass judgment, to condemn, to criticize, to, in effect, play God, which men have no basis, no reason, no right to do. Have you ever noticed that man has this fatal tendency to always seem to want to exaggerate the faults in other people while diminishing his own? We don't do that, do we? No, we don't do that. Not at all. You know why the church is a refuge? The church is a refuge for sinners because other sinners are here who've been saved by grace. That when sinners come in, the church doesn't point to them and say, Aha, you sinner. The church doesn't condemn. The church doesn't judge. The church turns with open arms and says, We know and understand. Come on in, let us help you get healed. That's why the church is a refuge. The church is a place where a brand new Christian who is a baby, who has pooped his diapers, doesn't get beat up and condemned for pooping his diapers, who can come in and get clean diapers. And as that child grows up and matures, that he in turn helps other diapers get cleaned. You see, the church is a refuge, isn't it? That's why you and I don't condemn other people. That's why we look for and greet and welcome and embrace sinners when they come in. Because it's a refuge. Because we remember, too, that we are sinners saved by grace. We have no basis to criticize. Because when we criticize... We're only condemning ourselves. We know the standard. The person who condemns himself or judges another really condemns himself because he knows the standard. He's responsible to maintain that same standard. No one is above the law, are they? No one. Jesus kept the whole law, didn't he? Jesus didn't put himself above the law. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I read the Gospels where he broke all kinds of laws. Ah, no, 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 no. Well, didn't he get the Pharisees all ticked off at him? Yes. He wasn't breaking God's laws. He was breaking and decimating the traditions and the rules of the Pharisees. The man made laws. He delighted in smashing those to smithereens, didn't he? 
but he did not break God's law. He upheld it, he fulfilled it, he kept it to the very last jot and tittle. His words. How does one condemn himself when he passes judgment on another? A couple of examples. Amos, the Old Testament prophet, don't turn there, I just want to tell you real quickly about it. You read it later, it's absolutely thrilling. Amos is called by God to pronounce judgment on all the surrounding neighbors and nations of, of Israel and Judah. Now, at this time in the history of the nation of Israel, they've split into the ten northern tribes, which will be called henceforth Israel, and the two southern tribes, which will be referred to as Judah. And all their neighbors now, God through the prophet Amos, is pronouncing judgment on them. Egypt, Assyria, all the neighbors. And Israel is over here saying, yeah, get them, Amos, get them. You're right, God's going to get them. But you see, Israel was in the midst of rebellion and turning away from the Lord, and Amos turned to Israel and said, you're next. And he pronounces judgment on Israel. You see, Israel was, was condemning others and, and in reality condemning themselves. And while God, when Amos was speaking to Israel, Judah was over here saying, yeah, get him, Amos. And then Amos said to Judah, and you're next. <laughs> you got to be careful when you start pointing the finger, don't you? Because you don't know what's going to come back. Turn with me to 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, the 12th chapter. Exciting example of this very same principle. The 12th chapter of 2 Samuel. And in this situation, here's, here's the, let me describe it for you. Here's what we have. We have King David, who has um, been involved in adultery with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. He doesn't fess up. He doesn't get it out in the open. He doesn't try to get forgiveness. He just covers it up. Part of the cover-up ends up being the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He still covers it all up. Nobody knows. He's safe, right? No. Who knows? God knows. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to talk to David. Now remember, David's the king. The greatest, most powerful king Israel ever knew. He sends Nathan in the 12th chapter. We pick up the account. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He told Nathan to tell a parable, by the way. That's like coming in the back door. Okay, you don't go right in the front door. You tell a parable. God said to Nathan, I want to catch David, and I want him to accuse himself. Don't give him an opportunity to deny it. So Nathan went to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Doesn't that make your blood boil? Oh, that guy. God ought to get him, right, Paul? That's exactly what David said. 
at, the, at this parable, verse 5 says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. What a cold-hearted turkey. He ought to die. Woo, David, watch out what you're saying. He had no pity. Did some dastardly deed. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Woo, who found out? You see, David, in condemning this man, condemned himself. He opened himself wide open for God to cut through to his heart and convict him of his own sin. He's a sinner. And as a result of this, he writes Psalm 51 where he cries out to God. He says, create in me a new heart, etc., etc. Matthew, the 7th chapter, in verse 1-5. through five. Matthew sets forth Jesus' Jesus own words about judging not, lest you be judged. And by the standard you judge, it will be judged according. He says, why do you seek to remove a speck out of your brother's eye, and yet you've not made a move to remove the log, the plank, out of your own eye? Do you see how, how when we stand in criticism, we are really condemning ourselves? That's what the Bible says we end up doing. We have to trust in Jesus moment by moment. And the minute we get off trusting in him, we get back into the flesh and start condemning. Start criticizing. He says at the end of that first verse that we are condemning ourselves because we who pass judgment are doing the same things. The word same doesn't mean identical. The nuance of meaning in the Greek is that we do the same kind of things. The things that we do are just as abominable, just as detestable in the sight of the Lord as these other things. Even though we are not involved in that, we're involved in things just as bad. Even though we put on our own cloak of self-righteousness, our heart is still black. We do the same things. Self-righteous people make two grave mistakes. And the first is that they, they mistake the extent of God's law, where it reaches to. God's law just is not limited to external acts. It reaches down into the heart, to where people live. It examines the motives. And you see, it's the self-righteous person who is merely concerned with how he looks on the outside. No thought given to what's going on inside, that God is counting him, calling him accountable for his motives, his thoughts. The second fatal mistake is that the self-righteous person doesn't realize and understand the depth of their sin. Again, sin is limited to just an external act. We commit these external acts of sin because we are sinful. Sin permeates every fiber of our being. And we've got to be healed of it. And nothing, nothing can change us except God. And his provision is in Christ. Matthew, the 
fifth chapter, as Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the, the Jews, he says, you have heard it said, you have heard your elders teach, you know that it's written, thou shalt not, what? Murder. But I tell you, I tell you that you need to look in your heart. If you're angry with your brother, you have murdered him. You're guilty. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you look on a woman to lust after her, you are guilty. You see, people who are self-righteous don't understand. They don't look to the depth of sin in their life. They don't realize where they really are guilty. They may be externally doing fine, upright, moral, but down deep inside, they're grossly sinful. And these people will stand off and accuse other people for their behavior, for their motives, but they will not address their own. Two very fatal mistakes that the self-righteous makes. There are some people here this morning, I know there are. I don't know who you are, I don't know how many, but I know there are some people here this morning, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you're here for the hundredth time. But I know that you're trusting in something other than Jesus. I know that. I know you're trusting in your own personal righteousness. I know that you're trusting in something like church membership. I know you know something of the lingo. I appeal to you for the first time in your life give yourself to Jesus. How can I know that I've given myself to Jesus? Because every day you will pick up your cross You'll deny yourself and you'll follow Him. Every day you'll understand that you too are a sinner saved by grace who has no basis for criticizing another person. Every day your life will be marked with thankfulness as a reminder of your dependence on Him. That's how you know. If those characteristics are there, you're trusting in Jesus. You've given your heart to Him. You're not just playing a game. I urge you, no, I beg you, don't leave this building this morning without making a firm commitment of your life to the person of Jesus Christ, that you will surrender yourself to him, that you'll follow after him every single day, that you'll learn what he wants, and you do it. Not because you have to, because you want to. Because you want to please him. Because you love him. And because you understand that there is no other name under heaven by which a man is saved, the name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, Father, I pray that you would take these words of clay out of my mouth today, and Father, you would anoint them and cause them to be spiritual food for those who need to hear. Lord, help us to be a people who really truly understand the calling of the church to be a refuge. Help us to make a difference between sin and sinner. Help us, Lord, to with great compassion love the sinner 
and hate the sin. Lord, we love you. We thank you for so much. Your graciousness to us, your blessings upon our life, the incredible abundance that each and every one of us have access to. But Lord, we want you to know that even if these things weren't possible, if we didn't have all this great abundance and blessings in our life, Lord, we want you to know that we are thankful for the privilege of learning to be thankful. Jesus, we love you. Save many people today, I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name.